Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lineage Speaks, the podcast. I'm your host, Martelena Don, and today sharing an excerpt from her book, A Series of Surrenders, a memoir of grief, we have Deborah Lynn Driscoll. Deborah Lynn Driscoll is an author, spiritual teacher, and the founder of Big Life Magic. Deborah has practiced and taught spiritual development and healing practices for over 25 years and takes great delight in activating magic in others. The core of Deborah's work is in heart repair and the transformation from big life loss to big life magic. Her expertise, Reiki master, meditation and intuition teacher, grief guide, oracle and energy reader, and master storyteller. Deborah is the author of A Series of Surrender, a memoir of grief. In 2023, Deborah will be writing and crafting her second book, Surrendering to Magic. The foundation of her work is heart repair, stitching together the threads of your energetic heart and its relationship to your soul. There is a pathway from your big life loss to your big life magic and her North Star is showing people the way so they can heal the ouch and tap into their magic. She believes we all have magic within us and by accessing our magic, we activate our ability to be the best healers and teachers for ourselves and others. Using intuitive guidance, spiritual practice and storytelling, she helps people tap into their magic so they can heal, transform and expand. She invites people into their own big life magic. It is her belief that our big life losses are the pathway to our big life magic. Every loss or challenge offers a lesson and each lesson offers the opportunity to strengthen our energetic hearts and invite more love and in turn more magic into our lives. This belief was developed and strengthened in her journey from single mother to a grieving mother. In 2013, her son Sage, aged 11, unexpectedly died. The question she asked herself in the days following was, will her spiritual practice and all she knows about healing be enough to keep her head above the waves of grief? The answer she found was many layered and a resounding yes. Sharing with you here a piece of my story within a series of surrenders. As I traveled down the mountain towards the airport, I became numb. It felt like the world around me was carrying on with its turning, but I was frozen. Numb soon transformed into guilt as I was sure I was meant to be feeling something. The mother who had lost her child only yesterday was surely supposed to be full of feeling. So numb became guilt and so I drank. Wine was necessary and not sipped, but gulped. I drank at the airport bar and then the whole flight home. By the time our plane landed in Brisbane, I was drunk and had become delirious. My sisters, Heather and Elizabeth, also drunk, were delirious with me. The smallest thing seemed funny. 
I guess we were laughing to stop the tears from taking over. My mother was silent. It all felt surreal and then very real again after touchdown. In the car driving towards home, I let my eyes close to seek numb again. The wine helped to ease me into a lull as the passing lights of the highway blurred the road home. When we arrived at my house, I announced to my sisters and mother that I would be going in alone. If I couldn't bring Sage home, then no one was coming home with me. My irrational hope was, if I was alone, maybe I would be closer to my son. All I found was empty rooms. My drunken stumble led me to Sage's room. The smell was familiar. The toys and books were well-worn and shrewn all around the place. The colours bright as a young child's room should be. I sat on his bed and I waited for my expected sadness and tears, but was shaken by a rage that propelled my feet to fly. In an unconscious strike, I kicked the pedestal fan and felt satisfied when it hit the floor with a clang. I stomped my heavy, drunk feet through the house and stopped in the back room at Sage's desk. I pick up a chair at his desk and throw it into the backyard. Ah, that felt good. I walked into the kitchen and my glaring eyes sought out all the breakable items. I stopped, frozen in a moment of clarity through the haze. No, Deborah, put yourself to bed. Knowing no good could come of the day you fly home without your son, I staggered to my room and passed out. In the morning, I woke with a heavy heart and a sore head. With coffee in hand, I stared at the chair in the backyard. I stared into the garden for I don't know how long, but long enough to realize I had a choice. I descended the five wooden stairs into the garden and picked up the chair. I went to Sage's room and picked up the fan. I walked from room to room. I was alone in a home that was now without heart. It was like walking through the skeleton left behind after the decay of flesh has made its way to completion. I was left with the remains of a life I had built and the bones that show a body was once here. It was time to open and fill the spaces between the bones. I knew that now more than ever, I needed to lean on spirit and those I loved. If I closed in now, it was possible I may never open again. So I sent out word and I opened my home. I invited everyone who knew and loved Sage and they all came. They came bearing their gifts. I centered myself and began to receive. Years later, I learned that I had in my own way called the sitting of Shiva, a Jewish week-long death ritual that follows the burial of a relative in the home they inhabited. My garden version of sitting Shiva 
was the constant flow of people, food, wine, tears, connection, laughter, and stories of sage. As my fascination with spirit, magic, and healing continued beyond my 20s and deepened into my 30s, I had come to rely upon my sense of intuition, my belief in angels, the power of the universe, and believed we are all connected, not just in this life, but in lives before and beyond. My studies in natural healing practices and my lived experience as a Reiki master shaped my spiritual practice. Teaching Reiki, using oracle cards for guidance and the practice of meditation and affirmation had become my norm and I relied upon them to help me navigate life. I wondered as I sat on the kitchen floor where I had landed when my legs collapsed under the heaviness of shock and the early waves of grief. How would this play into this new chapter of my life? How much would my spiritual practice help me? It was no longer time to study or teach. It was time to apply. A quiet yet present part of me feared that it would not be enough. And despite effort, I would still drown under the weight of grief. I became not only curious, but felt a responsibility to again find the silver lining. I reminded myself that death comes bearing gifts. Justine was the first to arrive. What will happen now? She asked. I didn't know the answer, but I knew everything had changed and would never be the same again. I glimpsed a moment in my future time when I would be okay. It felt like life was to be reassigned, reimagined and redefined, but not yet. Now the time asked for me to sit and to be, to be with the knowing that my son had died. It took much longer than I expected for the shock of Sage's death to align with my soul and to settle. Grief in her full presence did not arrive for days, and her lessons were not felt for weeks, some taking years. In the days that followed Sage's death, I felt both numb and inspired by love and magic, a very strange mix. I sat for days in my garden and home and watched as it filled with love, grief, care and kindness. It is difficult to remember the details, I remember being thankful that I was not alone. I was surrounded by many friends and my family. Julie, Marty and Nina had all flown to be in the garden with me. I remember being aware of the many amazing and generous people in my life. I remember more than once finding my legs could not hold me. And I was again with death on the floor holding my knees, sometimes crying and sometimes just simply unable to stand. Over and over again to those who arrived, I told the story of Sage's passing. In the retelling, it appeared to be a narrative of the perfect death of the wise old man. He died peacefully in his sleep. In the living days on weekends, Sage and I would go to the local trash and treasure 
to collect old pieces of technology, computers, typewriters, printers, anything with parts. He would then delight in taking their technology apart with his trusted tools. Each part revealed another knowing and new lessons in how the technology of the world worked. Every part extracted was kept. This was Sage's inventor business that was to him imperative to his development and to him something that a mere normal person like me would never understand. To Sage, this was his magic and he took it very seriously. Over time, the pieces developed into a large collection. On the day of the opening of my garden, I built a large spiral in the garden with the pieces of Sage's technology. The centerpiece was an old vinyl turntable. The spiral spun out to create what I hoped to be a portal. My wish was the beloved technology would invite Sage's spirit into the garden. I desperately wanted him there. The spiral gave me hope that his spirit would float down to be with me, to be with us. I had said more than once that the garden of that home saved my soul, and it was now the place my soul and heart lay open. In the corner stretched the large jacaranda tree that I had blessed and loved. The jacaranda tree was the queen of the garden. She was obviously old, amazingly large, and wore her purple flowers that bloomed in September like a majestic bejeweled crown. To reach her, you walked to the deepest left corner of the garden. There she stood, proud and wide, with three low, thick branches that naturally split to create a wooden seat of earth magic, a throne. I learned early on to not sit on the throne, despite its allure. When I did dare to ease my simple non-queen self upon her, she would groan, quietly at first. If I stayed and tried to settle, she would raise her wood tone and simply say, get off. Her warning was clear and her command was always honoured. Sage and I lived in that home for more than three years and in that time, my relationship with the garden and the queen grew. I learnt to respect that I was uninvited upon the throne, but under her canopy was a place I was allowed. I landscaped her feet and field beyond into my ritual space. I lay bark, planted flowers, bought outdoor candles and added my own throne, an old discarded wooden bench. It became my retreat, a place to be with my thoughts, to wish upon magic and to dream my way away from the reality of a single mother thrown on purpose into the deep suburbs. Sage very rarely came under the tree and if ever he did, it was by invitation or his desire to have a need met. Mum, when are you coming in to make dinner? It's getting dark. I began by sitting there. Under her, I felt safe. 
I deeply appreciated how little she spoke and felt the ease of not having to report to her how I was. As my whole self took a breath under my queen, I heard a new message. I know God won't give me anything I can't handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. Why this quote rang in my ears was a mystery, but one I heard clearly. And it raised the question, where was God in all of this? On the Sunday of the first weekend without Sage, my brother brought his children to my garden. My niece, Tara, who is only months younger than Sage, gave me a picture. I don't know why, Aunty Deb, but I wanted to draw this picture for you. I looked at the picture and saw the face of my spirit guide, Cassandra. I know why, Tara. Years before, through meditation, I had asked to be introduced to my spirit guide. The image shown to me in the meditation was a woman with masses of red, fiery hair, and I was told her name is Cassandra. In my bedroom, I had two images of her, one from an artist based in the Blue Mountain and one painted by my sister Liz. I took Tara into my room to show her Cassandra. I hugged her and thanked her for bringing me this very special message. Cassandra was with me. Was this my evidence of God? Tara was delighted and impressed with her ability and gift, and I delighted in her pleasure for a moment. And then I remembered that no more pleasure of Sage could be hugged. So I hugged Tara tighter, followed promptly by the pouring of more wine. I felt my spirit strengthen to the task. Rituals and ceremonies were needed. Decisions needed to be made. My mind had left, my body mostly numb, my heart broken, but my spirit felt strong. I knew the seeds I planted now would grow for years, so I wished the best for myself. Remembering my vow from my early 20s to fully meet and feel grief when she arrived next, I promised myself three things. I would wish the best for myself. I would go through the center of the grief, not under, not over, but through. And I would commit to going to the scary places if they presented as the best or only way forward. I purposely stayed connected to those with me as a way to stay stable and of this earth. My spirit sought the centre of the garden technology spiral and I was often lost in my wanderings of mind and soul as my heart reached up to heaven. I am not sure what those around me saw, but I felt split between heaven and earth. I was very much alive, but not sure I wanted to be. My creative companion Haley was charged with writing and officiating Sage's Memorial. My sister Liz stepped in to assist with her creative talents. Nina, who had flown in from Spain, ensured everyone was invited. Godmother Julie set to task in the garden and together with her brother built a ceremonial fire pit 
that was then cement sealed by Justine, Nina and Sage's friends, Daniel and David. Marty fed everyone good food and Anna hung ceremonial grief flags, a symbol of Sri Lanka. My family came and went. My sisters managed the different bits and pieces that needed to happen. My sister Sandra managed the comings and the goings of the people and the donations. My brother managed the arrangements with the funeral director. Kathy flew north from the mountains. Heather told the neighbours of the fire to be lit on the night of the memorial. Judith gathered photos and created the visual story of Sage in a large photo album. Liz created with Haley, and my mother sat with me. The school called, friends arrived and then left again and arrived. There was constant activity. I drank a lot and I ate only a little. I wondered what others saw in me. Was I doing this right? Are these the correct actions of a grieving mother? The rain came and went. I would wait for more than two weeks for Sage's body to come home, to see him again, to dress him for his final rest, to place him in his coffin and to kiss him goodbye. I knew that it was very unlikely that I would ever know what had happened to my little boy. I released and set to task in the celebration of Sage. It was time to write a eulogy. Would I pull out my pre-prepared spiel of my son's life? I mean, really, how the fuck do you do this? I had the journal I had written for Sage when he was in my belly and in the early years following, I had written him one or two letters a year. I had written to share with him our life stories and to ensure that his early life was documented. One afternoon in preparation for the eulogy, I chose to read the journal and the letters. I sat myself under the jacaranda tree at the back of the garden. I expected to read stories of my son, but what was revealed were stories of the mother of the son. It was all about me and how I felt as his mother. Only a few stories of Sage were found in the letters. I was horrified. I saw myself reflected on the page as a woman in pain. Had I screwed up my son? Was I to blame for the absence of his father? My agony and loneliness as a single parent unsure at every step. The desired fairy tale of my life had twisted to reveal bitterness, pain and guilt. The anti-fairy tale. I sat in this discomfort under the jacaranda tree. How much had I missed while I tumbled in the muck? Flashes of sage over the years, caring very little for the muck and simply getting on with life and love played before my eyes. All my worry had been for nothing. All I had done was take myself away from moments in time, moments I had with sage. A steady resolve rose. Sage and his story were to be central and celebrated at his memorial. On the day of the memorial, I woke early. I felt lost and knew the only way to be found was to seek the trees. I drove to the river and wandered aimlessly among the open spaces between the trees. My body was pulled towards the bank of the river and I sat to watch her flow 
The pull to go deeper persisted, so I edged closer and slid my body down the muddy bank. I could not seem to get close enough, so I entered her and stood with the water lapping at my thighs. That afternoon, I was to stand in honour of my son. The eulogy was mine to share. I asked the river, how can I possibly do this? She simply said, allow it to flow. I was not satisfied, so I asked again. The river fell silent and simply flowed. I did not feel ready or able. I crawled out of the river, now a mess of water and mud. As I made my way through the trees, I saw a woman walking directly towards me. We were the only two in the park. Unlike me, she was neat, with her hair pulled back, and she had a pep in her step. As we passed, she smiled at me. I was drawn to the colours on her shirt and saw her shirt had a message printed on it. I've got sparkle. Yes, that is the piece I needed. Just a little bit of sparkle. Today was the day my son was to be celebrated and damn straight, he deserved sparkle. The sky clouded over and heavy rain came. I agreed with the sky. I also wanted to cloud over and cry, but this day asked for sparkle. I dressed in a dark long dress with a splash of red and felt like I was putting on a costume. I was driven to the ceremony by my friend Steve and in the company of Godmother Julie. The rain poured. I wondered how my mother was. I saw Fia sitting in the back seat next to Julie. I had no idea how I was going to do this, to walk into this. So I asked Fia to fuck off and I invited Sparkle to enter and I held on tight to Julie and Steve. As we arrived, the rain began to ease. The site was filled with red balloons, children, friends, family, and a strange sense of celebration. The sense memory of Sage strengthened my spirit and my heart opened. The memorial was by the river, by the water, in the same place where years before, I had led our community through Sage's first birthday ceremony. So many people had gathered. People I loved had traveled from far and wide. So many others surprising me with their presence. I was overwhelmed by the expansive crowd of people. The rain had not kept the mourners away. The scene was set and decorated with a splash of red Red was Sage's favourite colour and the invitation had requested people wear red. Sage was everywhere and nowhere. The technology spiral from the garden had been transported to the ceremony site. I was hoping it would draw Sage to us. I so wanted him to be there. The celebration of Sage began. The sky cleared and the rain stayed away. The ceremony, written by Haley, celebrated Sage's 11 gifts. 
love, strength, imagination, talent, laughter, reverence, generosity, compassion, dreams, gratitude, and courage. Laughter mixed with tears and an awesome young man was remembered and honored. My friend Beth sang one of my favorite songs, The River is Flowing. The river is flowing, flowing and growing. The river is flowing down to the sea. Mother will carry me, a child I will always be. Mother will carry me down to the sea. Family, friends and sages teachers shed stories and prayers. I shed my eulogy and Sage, the famous inventor, was acknowledged and applauded. Godmother Julie and my mother were honoured for the big part they had played in Sage's life. My family was acknowledged for their love and support and Daniel and David were thanked. At the end of the memorial, the Driscoll family stood in a circle of honour and strength around the technology spiral. My friends Ariel and Rex played their drums and a pulse charged over the beach. It was over. I felt devastated and strong. Champagne began to flow. For Sage. In a magical moment that is to last 10 years and 11 months, worlds collide. The old school and the new age meet and merge. The little old man arrives, arriving exactly on time. Beginning with peace and ease, the little old man settles into the body of a child. Sage Joseph Driscoll is born. Working together in time and space, working together in love and light, the little old man and the child begin to craft the dream, the dream of the famous inventor. I have a very big brain, he would tell me, and I am a famous inventor. Holding on tight to his dreams, Sage created a world a world where possibilities are endless and the potential of his brain was to be explored. I love you a lot, he would tell me, as he grounded down into the earth and into me. In a magical moment that lives deep in the night, worlds collide and my child leaves, leaving me exactly too soon. Love, Mum. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review us if our stories help you on your journey. Follow us on Instagram at Lineage Speaks the Podcast. Until the next episode, honor the light within you and let it guide your way on.